This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So um, for those of you who have the handout, it's not a mistake. We are doing verses 21 through 23 again in Matthew chapter 7. Um, I think I mentioned this last week. I did not plan on doing more than one sermon on this, uh, this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount, but was compelled to and uh, likely will look again next week. Um, For those of you who have been with us for a while, we are making our way through one of the most difficult teachings in all of sacred scripture. That is Jesus' actual Sermon on the Mount, the teachings in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, And we are in that passage, we're in that chapter where he now begins to warn all those who were listening that day on that mountainside and all those who have come to profess his name ever since. And, And the warning, as we've seen, it's severe. He starts off with this gentle teaching of a narrow gate and a broad gate and a difficult road and an easy road. And he says there are many who are on that broad road and only a few find Christ on the narrow one. And then he introduces the idea that there will be false teachers who come out and try to mislead us and try to cause us to uh, denounce Christ and to go astray. And then last week, he, he brings the focus back to uh, us inside, internal. And he says, now you... He goes, you don't want to be self-deceived. You don't want to have a faith that's not based upon me and the work of the cross and the grace that I offer. He says, because if you do, he says, if you end up on that day standing before me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? He says, I'm going to say to you, I don't know you. I've never known you. You're not one of mine. And as we looked at last week, those are the most horrific words anybody can ever hear. Especially someone who has has professed Christ and been baptized and attended church and read their Bible. And they've gone through this religious act thinking they know him and thinking they will enter his grace. Only to hear him say, I do not know you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. No worse words to hear. I mean, if we were created by God in his image to know him and to worship him and to receive his glory and give it back to him, for him to say to you, I don't know you, depart from me, worst. In fact, there's nothing that comes close to it, nothing that comes remotely close to it. And so we're going to come back and visit it again today because he's talking to the church He's talking to those who say, Lord, Lord. People outside the church do not say, Lord, Lord, to Christ. He's talking to those who are in the church who are self-deceived. And he says there are many in this group. And so it would be foolish for us to just blow by this or relegate it to a difficult teaching. Let's just kind of do it quickly so we can move on to something nicer. He wants us to hear him. Because the problem with a teaching like this if, if he's really teaching to those who are self-deceived, then we have a real problem. Because those who know Christ, I mean really know him and they love him and they've, they've repented and they're following him. They hear this and they say, I won't hear that on that day. And if that's true, praise God. But those who are self-deceived, 
will hear this and think, I know him. I won't hear that. And so the result's the same. Everybody thinks it doesn't apply to them. I mean, we all sit here. If you read this, if you hear it taught on, you go, oh, well, that's, that's, that's someone else. That's another church. That's another person. That's not me. And yet Christ is talking to us. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to every single person who professes his name. He's talking to every, every person in a church today who's sitting. He's talking to every pastor who's preaching. He's talking to every deacon, every ministry leader, every Bible study leader. Every single person who claims the name Christian, he's saying, I'm talking to you. And so the worst thing we can do is ride ourselves out of this teaching. Because that means that we are already self-deceived. We think we're okay, we're fine. I know him, of course I know him. He's saying, listen, many on that day will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. And I will say to the many, I do not know you. Now, I know in the church, we've, we've, we've done the new math, right? In public schools years ago, they came out with the new math where two plus two doesn't necessarily equal four. It may equal something else because we want to value the student's self-esteem more than the, the accuracy of math, right? And so in the church, we've done new math here too. What we've said is Christ said many are on the broad path, many will be misled by the false teachers, and many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and be cast out. But in the church, we say... No, 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 no. It's not many. It's only a few. It's, it's a few, we say, who are going to enter destruction, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth and darkness, and the many will come to know him. And so we invert the math. But just because we change the math doesn't mean we change the math. The many are still the many who will not know him, and the few who find it. What, he said this in verse 4, verse 14 of chapter 7. Small is the gate. Remember this. And narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. We can do the new math all we want, but two plus two still equals four, and many means many, and few mean few. And that means that even in a church this size, there may be many on that day who hear him say, I never knew you. I don't know of a more horrifying thought for a pastor. In my prayers for you these past few weeks, I'm terrified of the thought of you standing before Christ after years of being here and having him say to you, it's an, it's an untenable thought for me. I pray it is for you as well. I pray that thought for, from you to me is that same as well. Maybe Pastor Keith will stand before him and hear him say, I never knew you. By God's grace, that will not be the case. So how do we overcome an unconsciousness? Right? If we're unconscious, how do we wake up? If we're self-deceived, how, how do we get to that point where we're no longer deceived? How does that happen? I mean, last week we saw that those who came before God, they were orthodox in their faith, they were hardworking, and they were passionate about what they believed, right? We said, these are the perfect American Christians we want in the church. And yet, the problem is they don't know Christ. And so Christ says, I don't know you, depart from me. How do we overcome this, this veil? This week, today... I'd like to look at causes and cures. I mean, what are some of the causes that that have led to the self-deception, and how do we overcome it? What is the cure for it? And then next week, possibly, um, not sure yet, probably look at signs and solutions. Okay, what are the indicators that I am one of the deceived? Um, So let's do this today. Let's be proactive in our unconsciousness. Let's be proactive in our self-deception. And we're just going to look at two things today. One, the causes that will lead to being self-deceived. And then two, the cures. Or the cure. Causes and cure. So number one, two points. You said two points. It's going to be a short sermon. 
Don't count on it. Number one, the contributing factors to this. Now, fundamentally, we've got to start and say, okay, there is one significant problem that leads to self-deception. And that is when a person puts their faith or trust in anyone or anything other than Christ alone. Okay, so underneath all of this, all the, the, the causes I will show you from the scriptures, underneath it all is a misplaced faith. We say our faith is in Christ, we claim him as Savior, we say he's our Lord, but our functional Savior, our real Savior, is in someone else or something else. It may be a job, it may be a spouse, it may be children, it may be a, a myriad of things. Okay? So underneath all of these causes is that understanding that we are not taking the righteousness that's given to us by God through Christ, we are trying to make ourselves righteous. We're trying to do something to get back into God's good graces so he says, okay, you're, you're good enough to come in, come on in now. Some of the causes that we see play out of this fundamental problem. We want to know if we've gone astray. I mean, I, I can't imagine a single one of you saying, no, I want to stay self-deceived. I want to be unconscious. No one, no one, if, there, if there's any sobriety in your life, says, I want that. You want to know you know him. So that when you come into his presence, you'll hear him say, I know you. I love you. And you go, I love you too. Not away from me. So one of the first causes, and there are several. Okay, I, I'm just, I was taking ones that stood out in the passage and ones that I think apply to our church, Camden, today and the culture. So this is by no means an exhaustive list. We'd be here for a day or two. First, one of the major causes I see today is faulty doctrine. I mean, just wrong teaching, wrong biblical doctrine that's made its way into our life. Myths, Christian myths. And we use them all the time and we say them all the time and we think they're somewhere. We were joking the other night that, you know, if you don't know where a passage is, you always say Leviticus, right? It's got to be somewhere in, uh, I don't know, Leviticus, right? Why? I mean, Leviticus is hard and very few people read it. So, well, let's just dump everything there. The myths that we live by, the things that we think are biblical, think are of Christ, think are of God's will, but are not. Paul said to Timothy, another gripping verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said, The time will come when they, and they will be the many who think they know him but do not. The time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will turn their ears away from the truth and they will turn aside to myth. Okay? Now we're still under the Christian banner. We're still gathering in churches. But what have we done? We've taken false teachers and we are now listening to their myths because what they say we like them saying. And we pay them to say it. Tell me that I'm good. Tell me I'm okay. Tell me I'm on the narrow path. Just tickle my ear and I'll give you more money. And so we fill places like that. When Timothy, when Paul said to Timothy, the time will come, that, that time's now. I know there have been periods, but it's definitely now. If there's any time in human history, it's now. Where we have millions of people on this very Sunday gathering, listening to false teachers, feed them with myths they think are in the Bible. But they're not. I was reflecting just this past week on the number of people that have come into the midst of Camden Avenue over the past decade, the last 10 years that I've been serving, and they've stayed for a while, some a long while, until they heard something from the Bible they did not like, and then they leave. And I was reflecting upon, this, this, was, in, this was 
uh, a response to a dialogue I was having with a member about growing the church. I said, growing the church is not the problem. Getting people to stay is the problem. Why? Well, if, if the Bible speaks truth and we don't like that truth, what's the easiest thing to do? Well, you know, there are lots of churches. I mean, there was a time when you had the church in Corinth, so you couldn't go anywhere else. You had to stay in Corinth, as bad as Corinth was. Imagine, imagine. You know your scriptures. You know First and Second Corinthians. How many people would have stayed there? They would have gone somewhere, right? So I was just reflecting. Over the last 10 years, the number of people who have left this place, we'd be over capacity. Between rough estimate, two to 300 people would be here this morning if it were not for God's word, the truth that is hard to hear, and us rather having our ears tickled. Sticking. Staying. Going, you know what? This, is, this passage has been hard. How many of you last week said, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. That guy's crazy. And that's hard to hear. I'm not going back. Sticking. Staying. Listening. Receiving. Submitting. That's hard. How much easier to get someone to tell you what you want to hear, to tell me what I want to hear. Myths and partial truths, and they've made their way into our lives in so many ways. In this context, in the realm of of soteriology and salvation, we have some key verses. And there were several, but I'm not going to give you a million. I'll give you two. Romans 10.9. One passage, a teaching that's made its way into the evangelical church, where Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And we go, that's it. That's the single isolated, guaranteed, saving verse. And I've said with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my heart that God raised him for the dead, therefore I am saved. Don't tell me otherwise. Take it out of context. Isolate it. Single, saving power. I'll give you another one. In the context of our Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6 does it a little better. Jesus says, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. You go, oh, there's the paradigm. That's the solution. I don't need Christ. I don't need a Savior. I don't need forgiveness for my sins. All I have to do is not judge. And it says what? I will not be judged. And all I have to do is be forgiving, and I'll be forgiven. And therefore, it's all on me. It's my work. It's my doing. And people will take a a Romans 10 or a Luke 6 in isolation, out of the context of the Bible, out of the context of that passage. They will put it alone and they will say, I'm going to hang my whole life on this. The grievous thing is those who do will hear Christ say, I don't know you. These are true statements, but they're within the context of the entire Bible, the entire storyline of the entire Bible. And the air is simple. We do this a lot. And I've heard it in our church. We'll say, well, this person did this single verse in isolation, and therefore what? Therefore they must be saved. Therefore they must know him. Stories, good stories, have a beginning, a middle, and an end. All of them. We live as as Christians, in the context of a grand story, right? The grand story of God creating, man falling, and then God redeeming his fallen creation. Creation, fall, redemption. That's the grand story, and we're in it, and there are pieces in it. And it's why, if you're reading through the Old Testament, you got to know where you are. you got to kind of know what's going on to have any sense into what you're reading. All right, I'll give you a cruder example. 
the iconic movie series Star Wars. Most of you know it. If you're older, you know it from the first three, which were much better than the second three, which were actually the first three, right? So in the iconic movie series Star Wars, in the first, the second three, which they made the first, The Empire Strikes Back, let's say that's the only movie you watch in the entire series. And let's say the only part that you really pay attention to is that part where Darth Vader is fighting Luke. Remember that scene where they come together and it's this climactic event where they fight and they're going at each other and Darth Vader says to him, you are my son, right? And Luke says, no, never, it can't be true, right? And this is all you're seeing. And what does Luke do? He's sitting there with his hand cut off and he's hanging on a pole and he just falls, what you think, to his death, right? And that's all you see. Now, if that, if that interpretation of the movie, beginning, middle, and end, and the characters that are involved are based upon that isolated Um, scene, you're going to think some things like Luke was not submitting to his father. In fact, Luke might have been a rebellious, somewhat suicidal teenager whose father was just trying, his father said to him, come and rule with me, right? He was just not wanting to follow in his father's footsteps. Now granted, his father was dressed a little strangely and had a weird voice, right? But you might come away thinking Darth Vader was the good guy and Luke was the bad guy and then the whole end would change. Your whole perspective would change. If you take any truth the Bible teaches out of the context of the Bible, isolate it by itself, and make it a saving verse, you're in grave danger. Grave danger. So we take things out of context, out of the entire story of the Bible. Um, There's so many myths here. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to leave some of these out. I'm going to give you a few, though. A few more, I should say. There are many that I have met that were raised in the church and they were baptized and they went to church and they served in the church and they did that. And there's no concept of life and community and body and Bible anymore, but they still claim the title Christian. They say they they still know Christ. I know a man like this that I've testified to the gospel itself with the law and there's still that. So this particular individual, he... He, was, he, he, he absolutely believes he knows Christ. That on that day, in Christ's presence, he will hear him say, he'll hear God say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Uh, his father was a church planner. He was raised in the South. He attended church his entire young life. He served on the board of a very large, prominent Southern Baptist church. He votes Republican. He's good to his neighbors. And occasionally he gives money to the poor. And in his mind, this is the saved person. So when I ask him things like, your wife, who he is now divorced and is living with his girlfriend. And I ask him about things like, what about the community? What about the church? And he says, I I don't need that anymore. And so we'll ask questions. And I ask him about the law and the gospel of grace. And those dialogues are quickly turned to something else. There's fear. There should be for this man's soul that in light of the gospel, in light of the truth, he staked his claims on things that he, he did. And, and we've heard that even in the confines of this church. Well, I used to, I used to, I used to. Boasting. Why? For our own righteousness. Anytime the conversation would go to the law and the need to be saved by grace, it was turned. 
we, we hold on to myths of association. I'm saved because my parents are saved. I'm saved because my wife is saved. I'm saved because I go to church with a bunch of saved people. And if they're saved, I'm saved, right? Now, I know that within the context of our own legal system, there's guilt by association. But I've never seen in Scripture salvation by association. Not once. There's this implicit understanding, and explicit I should say, that you will stand before Christ, as we talked about this morning, either with him as your advocate and high priest and covered by his blood, or you'll stand alone with all your sins and transgressions. False doctrine has made its way into the contemporary American church. It permeates the church today. And it's one of the things that causes this problem of self-deception. What are some of the other causes? I'll give you another one. Second major cause that I've seen is this reliance upon works, and not just works, mighty works, and not just mighty works, but many mighty works. Did you look at the verse again? Verse 22. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And it's amazing. They're making a declaration. We looked at this last week briefly. They make a declaration to Christ, and he brings a declaration right back to him. But did you see their declaration? It's upon their works being mighty and being many. Not a single word in their declaration went like this. We put all of our faith in you. We're crying out for mercy before you. You are our savior. It's your work that we're going to rest our salvation in. No one said, no one in this dialogue says that we know that we're sinners deserving of death and hell, but you will save us from that. No one says we put no claim or stake on our own works. And anything that we've done that's good or right is because of you. Not the dialogue we hear. None of these men or women will say we see our total lostness before you, a holy God, and fall to your feet and cry out for mercy. Instead, they declare. And with that statement in the Greek, there's a boldness to it. It's a declaration. And, And it makes sense here, right? They're declaring their holiness. He calls them workers of lawlessness. And there'd be a rightful, wait a minute. If they think that they've earned their way, in fact, the word for, um, for works here, it's a word that we've already looked at in the Greek several times. It's dunamis, and it's dynamite, that there's power. And they believe that there's real power in their mighty works to actually save themselves. And so they've staked their claim, not upon grace, not upon faith, and not upon Christ and his mighty work. They've staked their claims on their own mighty work. And it's not by chance that Jesus uses these three external displays of piety to make his point. I mean, look at you got here. You have prophets, priests, and miracle workers, right? I mean, these are the guys. They're, they're prophesying. The prophets of old, they were always held up in high regard by the Jewish people. They were priests in that they were casting out demons. How many demons have you cast out lately? I mean, these are supernatural works. And they were doing many mighty dynamite, dunamis works in the name of God. Priests, prophets, and miracle workers. All highly visible. All known by other people. And what they're saying is this. They're saying, Lord, it's, these are the kind of people you want in your kingdom. <laughs> right? I mean, your kingdom is a mighty kingdom. We're mighty people. Your kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. We're prophets. Your kingdom is against the kingdoms of dominions and darkness. And we cast out demons. We're the kind that you want. I mean, we should be in your kingdom, right? We deserve to be in your kingdom. They come before Christ making this bold 
ridiculous declaration. And Christ comes back to them and he makes a declaration of his own. And he says, I never knew you, priest, prophet, miracle worker. I mean, when we read through the scriptures, is that the life that Christ calls us to? Does he say, be the prophet? Does he say, cast out demons? Does he say, do many mighty works? Is that the calling? Is that this, the, the movement that he expects the church to be in a supernatural frenzy? Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the Jews knew better. They knew better. Their Bible spoke to it. Hosea 6, 6, God declared, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And an acknowledgement of God, an acknowledgement of me rather than burnt offerings. And that word acknowledgement in the Hebrew, it's, it's yada, and it literally means a personal, intimate relationship of knowing me. Because I desire you to know me. And I want to know you. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This, that, that Hosea 6, 6 verse was so pointed that Christ picks it up himself in Matthew chapter 9. And in Matthew chapter 9, after he calls Matthew, remember Matthew's previous, remember what he did for a living? He was a tax collector. Not those of the best reputation. And he calls Matthew and he goes to Matthew's house and he has dinner with Matthew, the tax collector, and other sinners. And this is the dialogue. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, it's in quotation marks in the Greek, that's funny, and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, but go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the word mercy there, in, in the Hebrew, the Septuagint renders it, I love this, steadfast love. So God is saying, I desire a steadfast love for me, and a steadfast love for one another. First and second commandment, completely fulfilled, just like that. That's what I desire. Not prophecy, and not casting out demons, and not many supernatural works for the world to go, ah, ooh, and you to receive glory, to know me, to love me, to really love people. James goes even further. He says, the, re- the religion that our God, the, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless, what is it? Prophecy, casting out demons, doing many mighty works? Is that what he says? No. The religion God accepts as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in distress. That sounds boring. I mean, that's not very supernatural. To care for those who are in need and then to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's the religion that God desires. To keep your heart pure. To not be swallowed up by all the things and the trappings and the temptations. Jesus is not impressed by their grand display. And they... He doesn't say you didn't do it, you liars. He doesn't. He doesn't denounce what they did. They did it in their own strength, in their own power, probably by the power of someone that wasn't God. Right? He's not impressed. He wasn't impressed with them, and he won't be impressed with us when we make bold declarations of the great works that we've done that that we think give us a right to enter heaven. And, I mean, even the comparison. I don't know what your works are, but... My works aren't stacking up to casting out demons and prophesy. I mean, they're not. So I'm, I'm already in a bad place if I'm going to rely upon my works because these guys couldn't get in on theirs. Do you remember what God said to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah? In Isaiah 57, God said, I will expose your righteousness and your works 
and they will not benefit you. He said, when you cry out for help, when you say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty When you cry out for help, God said, let your collection of idols save you. But the man who makes me his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. Many mighty works will not save the soul of a man. So we're deceived by false doctrine. We're deceived by mighty works. There's another one I want to give you, another deception. Third, we're deceived by not knowing and then doing the Bible. I told you these weren't complex. Not knowing and not doing the Bible. Look again at at the verse. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who will? The one who does the will of my Father. Now, in order to do someone's will, you have to what? You got to know the will, right? Right? I mean, you can't, it makes sense. You can't do someone's will if you don't know what their will is. Now, that immediately puts many of us in a pickle. Because most in the church today do not know the fundamental will of God as revealed in the Bible, let alone the incredible details he gives us on how we are to live our lives as citizens of this new kingdom. I mean, most of us don't. Most in the evangelical American contemporary church are woefully ignorant when it comes to the fundamental will of God, let alone, how do I raise my children? How do I relate to my wife? How am I to be a member of the body of Christ? How am I to be an employee or an employer? Those details are vacuous in the church today. And I'm not saying this to condemn or be critical. Um, This is an observation of fact made by many, and it's grievous. Do any of you follow Barna's research group? He's a Christian whatever that means, a researcher and does research on Christian things, I should say. He's a pollster that does research on Christian movements in the culture, okay? Some of these are unbelievable, and I'll give you the sources. You can go back and look. Just a few that caught my eye and caused me to grieve. Only 30% of believers between the ages of 18 and 25, those are known as the mosaics. That's a, did you know that? You, you 18 to 25-year-olds are mosaics. I guess better than Boomer or Buster, right? Mosaic. It has a nice, nice artistic flair to it. Boomer Buster sounds bad all the way around. So 18 to 25, the mosaics, and only 39% of the Busters, 26 to 44, believe that the Bible is true in its teachings, or all of its teachings, its comprehensive nature. That means that even if those in those two categories, the mosaics and busters, did know the will of God, 60 to 70% wouldn't believe it's fully true. We're already in a terrible place. Even if we know it, which we don't, we don't believe that it's all true. In those same two groups, mosaics and busters, only 40% spend more than 15 minutes a week praying and reading their Bible. 15 minutes a week learning God's will, submitting to it through prayer. 60%, not at all. 54% of all professing Christians in our country say they read the Bible once a week or less. That's over half. Now, this is not rocket science. If you're not in the word of God, then you won't know his will. And if you don't know his will, you can't do his will. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four gospels. I mean, if we don't know the names of the books, we're in bad shape. According to the data by the Barna Research Group, 60% of American Christians can't even name five of the Ten Commandments. I'll give you a story that's even worse. In my systematic theology class, 
the large majority of the students in the class could not name five of the Ten Commandments. And these are seminarians training to be pastors. That's not good. A majority of Christian adults think the Bible teaches the most important purpose in life is, I I didn't know this, to take care of your family. 12% believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. 50% of high school graduating Christians thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. I'm not kidding. And a considerable number of respondents to one poll believed that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. <laughs> if, it weren't, if, if what it revealed were not so grievous, it'd be laughable. But it's grievous, right? Barna writes this. He says, no wonder people break the Ten Commandments all the time. They don't know what they are. And he says, the bottom line is simple. Increasingly, American Christians are becoming more and more biblically illiterate. We know this. I mean, we see the trends. We know it. But fundamentally, Jesus is saying, it's those who do the will of my Father who will enter heaven, but you can't do it that you don't know, and if you don't know it, then one of the many. One of the many. The result is not only not doing the will of God, it's replacing his will with the things of the world. Right? I mean, we don't walk around this vacuous state saying, I don't know what God thinks, and I don't know what anybody else thinks, I don't know anything. We take in teachings from the world. And it's the reason, it's one of the reasons the church today is, is embroiled in weird dialogue that didn't even take place 40, 50 years ago. Like, young earth, old earth. How do we interpret Genesis chapter 1? Because these are all new dialogues. Uh, divorce. Why can you divorce? What are the reasons for Divorce. You know, we have a myriad today. 30 years ago, the dialogue wasn't there. Today, the proliferation of homosexuality in the church and the justification for the lifestyle in the church. Huge dialogue. Church is splitting over it. It's not vague in scripture at all. Females in the pastorate. I know that's touchy. We're Southern Baptist Church. What do you expect? Females in the pastorate. Not Difficult to render biblically. And yet all that's been dragged into the church. Why? We don't know better. We don't know what the Bible says. And we certainly are not doing it. Those four, and I could give you several, but those four are so black and white biblically that if you mess up on it, you either are saying, I don't know what it says, which is not good, or I know what it says, and I'm going to disobey it, which is even worse. We've gotten to this place where we say to ourselves, the ends justify the means. And if we can just get to that desired result, then however we get there is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. As long as we get there, it's okay. And by the way, the ends are the ends that we decide are right. One great justification we hear today regarding Christians and the issue of divorce. We heard it in our own church a few years ago. You ready? God wants married couples to be happy. And God wants those individuals to have a healthy relationship with Jesus. And if being married, they're not happy. And if in their unhappiness, they, their relationship with Jesus is, is diminished, then better they get a divorce. And this is a line of thinking. And it's not isolated anymore. And it's not just in the fringe churches. It's in the popular, mainline, evangelical churches in our country. And so, husband and wife are, are struggling. And someone says, well, doesn't God want that person to be happy? Hmm? 
Doesn't God want that person to follow Christ? This is the end that we want. This is what we say God wants. Therefore, divorce makes a lot of sense because they're miserable together. Grant them a divorce. Let them be separate. Forget about the Bible saying what God has brought together. Let no man tear apart. Forget about the Bible saying that God hates divorce. Forget about God saying any man or woman who divorces their spouse and then remarries commits adultery. Forget about all those passages. And let's just talk about their happiness and their relationship with Christ and that end. And however we get there, that's all we got to do is get there. And we just violate passage after passage after passage. The church foolishly thinks the results are all that matter. If we can just get people to get into church and we can just fill the seats and we can collect as much money as we can and we get them to hang around long enough, it doesn't matter how we do it. You know, we can dance and we can sing and we can bring, you know, motorcycles up on the stage or maybe ride a horse down the aisle. Those are all real things. And just get people in. Then the end, their being here will justify the means. God doesn't operate like that. He says, speak the truth in love. Live a holy life. Follow my son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so you got false doctrine, you got works, you got not knowing and doing the Bible. Last one, and then we'll look at the cure. Self-examination. Examining yourself. Last week, we and I said, listen, this is a call to self-examination. Jesus is saying to this, when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Not everyone on that day, he's telling us about the day beforehand, Right? He's saying, listen, there's going to come a time in the future, not yet, when people are going to stand before me and be cast in the other darkness. They thought they knew me. So he's telling us something now. He's giving us a glimpse, right, into this future judgment. Why? Why? To cause confusion? Does he want to just rain chaos to reign in the church? I'm saved. I'm not saved. I don't know. Is that what he's doing? Why would he give us a glimpse? Why would he desire us to know this picture before it takes place? Why? So that we'll turn. So that we won't end up being the many who hear him say, I do not know you. So that we will evaluate ourselves and examine ourselves. Paul said, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourself. Test yourself. Put yourself under the scrutiny of a holy God. Look at the Ten Commandments. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Look at, the, look at Galatians chapter 5 and the bearing of fruit. Look at the whole counsel of God and evaluate yourself in light of what he said. Paul in Philippians 2 said, My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Is he? I mean, do you see that in your life? Do you see God working through you to bring about his own glory? Do you see him working through you to bless others and minister to others and love others? Do you see that? Test that. Great introspection is called for. But we've had this weird movement in the Protestant church especially in our country in the last several years where the word testing and evaluation is looked at as wrong. And if you do that, then your faith is suspect at best. In other words, if you follow the commandments of Scripture to test yourself and evaluate yourself, that you are saying you don't know Christ. There was a Bible, when I first came to Saving Grace and first started coming to this church years ago, there was a Bible um, teacher who told me that exact thing. He said to me, if you question 
or doubt your salvation or you examine yourself or you test yourself. He said, you are saying you're not saved. Now, not only was that completely counter scripture because the Bible says to test yourself and examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith, to do that, not to create fear or anxiety, but to have an assurance of your salvation in Christ. But it was amazing. Not only that individual, but several individuals after that who advocated that position, don't test, don't evaluate. They were antinomianists. So what is that? That's someone who says, it's all grace, beginning to end. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you abide by the law. The law has no bearing of any kind. We don't follow it. And so the law is rejected. And these people lived lawless lives. But they were saved by grace. But they didn't obey the commandments. But they were saved by grace. Jesus said, away with me, workers of lawlessness. Examination is not only biblically commanded, it's wise. It's wise to regularly evaluate yourself, your life in Christ, according to the word of God. To this sermon on the mount that Christ gives us for the the entire Bible. Remember last week, 1 John chapter 2, by this we will know if we have come to know him, how? If we what? If we keep his commands. That's how you're going to know. How do you know? Do you keep his commands out of your love for the Savior? We can evaluate ourselves on that. We can look at a Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We can go to Exodus chapter 20. We can look at Galatians 5. We can go throughout all the sacred scriptures and say, how does my life line up with his teaching? Do I know Christ? Is he, my, is he the, the lover of my soul? Am I following him? Am I repenting daily and following the Savior? And these are not, eh, it's yes or no. It's yes or no. And it's not enough just to look at your actions. Remember, these people came before Christ. And they were orthodox and hardworking and passionate. You have to look at your motives. Why do you do what you do? Why do you live as you live? Why do you minister? Why, are, why is anybody here this morning? Why are you here? Sunday. Bad answer. Why are you here? My parents made me. Bad answer. Submit to them, but bad answer. Why are you here? I love Christ. I love Christ. I love his word. I know him and I love him. And I want to sing to him and I want to pray to him. And I want to hear him speak to me and I want to respond to that. I love him. That's a good answer. I know him. I want to be amongst those who know him. I want to be amongst his body here on earth. Good answer. Okay, before we get to the cure, because you want the cure, right? A good doctor is going to diagnose the cause of the illness and then give you the cure, right? So we, we looked at some of the causes. Before we get to the cure, this diagnosis of unconscious self-deception requires people. It makes sense, right? If you're self-deceived, then God and those he saved by grace will help you become unself-deceived, Hard to see ourselves, isn't it? I mean, it's so hard to see ourselves because we want so badly to see ourselves in a right light. Do you know how long it took me to realize I was going bald? For a long time, I would look, but it's weird. When you look in the mirror, you see things that are not there. Or you see things that you don't want to be there, right? For many, it's the wrinkles. I, you know, and, then, and then you get a glimpse, and you're just walking by, and you didn't intentionally want to look in the mirror, but you're walking by a window, and you're like, oh, who's that bald man? That's me. I have no hair. 
self-deceived. How? I mean, with our own eyes, we deceive ourselves. How much more in the spiritual realm? You need people. You need believers who know you and love you and come alongside of you and say, listen, I love you and I know you and I'm alongside of you. And what I'm seeing is not good. Do you know that? Are you aware of that? Do you have those people? Do you know people like that? Okay. No one who professes Christ wants to hear Christ say to them, I never knew you depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. No one. Deceived or not deceived, all those who profess Christ want to and have an expectation of knowing him forever and ever, right, in his presence. So we start with a baseline there. So what is the cure to this dilemma? This cure of a misplaced faith. This cure of these, these causes, right? So if we say, okay, simply, wisdom would say, if one of the problems is false doctrine, then let's have true doctrine. <laughs> let's know what God really wills. I mean, that makes sense, right? That's true. So do that. Let's do that. Collectively and individually. That means knowing your Bible, studying your Bible, te- being taught, having a teachable spirit. If one of the things that will cause those on that day to hear Christ say, I never knew you, is putting your faith and your hopes in your mighty works, then stop and realize that if there's anything good you're doing, it's because of him. It means that if you've staked your claim in the works that you think bring him honor, go back and evaluate with the real works that do bring him honor, like caring for the orphan and the widow and keeping your heart pure and not polluted. The things that really, the small things... Raking the leaves on your neighbor's lawn. Highly spiritual. Folding your socks and putting them in the drawer. Spiritual activity. It's not casting out demons, no. But it honors God. If you know that you don't know the Bible, and therefore by default you're not doing the will of God, because you don't even know what the will is, then wisdom dictates knowing the Bible. And you say, I don't even know where to start. Talk to me. There's several, talk, several people in this church will say, this is where you start, and I will help you. I love you, and I will help you to know his will, and not just the four gospels, or not to know, or to you know, say, okay, now I, now I know that Joan of Arc was not Noah's wife. Not those things, but the details. Like how, What is your primary role as a father to your children? The Bible talks in great detail about it. What is your primary role as a wife to your husband? What is your primary responsibility as a member of the body of Christ? Great detail. How are you supposed to live and interact in a pagan workplace? The Bible talks. All these details. Know and do. And then the last part, he said, well, testing. If you don't test yourself on a regular basis, and you don't come alongside someone to say, test me, Start. Start tonight. Before this sermon loses its freshness, go back to the Ten Commandments. Reread Matthew 5 and 6. Just those two chapters. Go to Galatians chapter 5 and look at the fruit of the Spirit. And just say, place yourself before God and say, examine my heart, O Lord. Show me. Do I see these things? And if it's a resounding no in every capacity... Not that you're perfect because you're not going to be perfect until you're glorified. But a resounding no, then there's one response. Repent and believe and follow Christ. But by God's grace, there'll be great encouragement. 
You'll see areas where that you're, you're really struggling, you've got to work on. You'll see areas where he's doing great work. Test yourself. You say, oh, that is, that, that's the only cure? No, it's not. Because underneath that is the need for us to know that we know. Right? The one dialogue that precipitated all last week as a result of last week's sermon, and I imagine will continue next week, is, but how do I know? Because I want to know. Isn't there assurance? Isn't, can't I know that I'm saved? I don't want to go through the rest of my life going, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, and then find out I'm not. Where is there a blessed assurance that Jesus is mine? How can I know? The problem here, the real problem is Jesus saying, I don't know you. Right? And so we want to know him. What matters most is knowing him. What matters most is being known by him. And it's not just, it's not just knowing about him, but knowing him intimately. You see, God is the judge. What he thinks is all that matters. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what your family thinks or what I think. What matters ultimately is what God thinks of you, especially on that day. Because you're not going to stand before him with your parents who will say, oh, I was there when he was baptized. Or your church members say, I ministered with this person my entire life. Or your wife who will say, oh, he reads his Bible every day. They won't be there. All those things will be cast aside and you will stand before God. And what he thinks and what he knows is all that will matter. And what does that mean? That means he has to know you. You must know him and he must know you. But not just about him and him about you. I mean, lots of people know about God. In fact, we can go so far as to say everybody knows about God. And certainly God knows about everybody else, right? He knows. So what is this knowing? What is this knowledge? Uh, It's a covenantal term. It's a relational term. Centuries before Christ, God the Father said through the prophet Jeremiah this. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. And he was talking about after the coming of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He declares this. He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. How will we know God? How will he come to know us in this intimate, personal, covenantal fashion? Well, he will forgive us our sins. He has to. He has to forgive our sins in order to have this knowledge, in order to engage, and he will remember them no more. In other words, we're going to know God in a saving way. Remember when God descended in Exodus chapter 19 on Mount Sinai? He came down and what? What was that episode? How would you describe it? Soft, quiet, nice, pleasant, lovely. No. Smoke, thunder, shaking, Right? This is the God at Mount Sinai. He comes down through the law and he reveals himself as a holy God. And then he says this. Here's a caring verse for you. Exodus 19, verses 10, 11, and 12. He said, on that day I will come down in the sight of all the people. And then he says, be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Lots of love. 
but it was. Because he's saying, I'm a holy God. You can't just walk up to me and, and touch me or talk to me and think everything's okay. You need to be forgiven of your sins. You need to be cleansed of your sins. And that time has come. That time is now too. Where through Jesus Christ, we can know him like this. Intimately and personally. Where we can go into the throne room of God. God, the, the, the veil's been torn. The holiest of holies has been exposed. We can go in through Christ and know him and be known by him and have him pour out his glory on us and us reflect it right back to him and have that real, intimate, personal relationship with the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ. Knowing him and being known by him, it must come through the Savior. It must come through his broken body. It must come through his spilled blood. John 3.16 was in the news two weeks ago. You all know the verse, most of you. For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his only begotten son. It's one of the verses that most people, only one they've ever memorized. Why? You saw it in a football game. You said, what, is, what does that sign mean? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not, what? Will not perish. Will not be cast out in the darkness. But have everlasting life. Will know me. Will know God. Instead of the thick smoke and the shaking of the earth, in Christ, because of his sacrifice, because he died that death that we rightly deserved, he rose from the dead and then he imparts to us his righteousness. Through Jesus Christ, we can know this holy God. We can. And we can know him intimately, personally, relationally, and covenantally. We can know him. There's a verse in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. I remember the first time I read it, it captivated me because it says something so simple and yet it's utterly profound. Why did Jesus do all this? Why did he come? Why did he die? Why did he rise from the dead? Why did he take our sins? Why does he give us his righteousness? Why? Why? I mean, some of you can give me a profound theological explanation. Simply put, he wants you. He desires you. He desires us to be brought back into a right fellowship with him and the Father. He wants us. Does God need us? No. No. Are we an incredible blessing in our sins and transgressions? No, no, no. So why? In Mark chapter 3, verse 13, we're told that Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to himself, he called to himself those that he wanted. He didn't need the disciples but he wanted the disciples. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to populate his kingdom. He wants us to populate his kingdom. He doesn't need us to know the Father. He wants us to know the Father. There's a deep wanting of Christ knowing you and you knowing Christ. Not because of anything we've done or anything that we deserve. God saved you because he wants you and he wants, this is the hardest part, he wants all of you. The Bible, we call it the heart, which was the very core and center of the being, comprised the whole being. These people in this passage came to God. They were orthodox in their minds, right? They were hard working with their hands, doing many mighty works. They were passionate. They cried out, Curie, Curie, Lord, Lord. But they didn't come with their heart. 
They came with their mind and maybe their hands and maybe their emotions, but they didn't come with their heart. God says, I want you and I want you to want me and I want all of you. I don't want you to hold anything back. I want you to stop being a control freak and give me your life. And you'll say, well, why should I? He said, because I gave my son's life for you. I gave my son's life to have your life, to have your heart, to have your mind, to have your body, to have your soul, to have your emotions, to have your work, to have your passion, to have your aura, to have everything. And now we're at it. Now we know why those on that day will hear Christ say, I never knew you, because they held back. They held back. They did not surrender. He was not their Lord. He was not their master. He was not their king and their everything, right? He wasn't. They held back. They held back something, and maybe it was their money, and maybe it was their marriage, and maybe it was their children, but they did not submit in total, in faith, to him. It's an absolute necessary condition of salvation. Your heart, God wants And he wants it all, not just a part of it, not just a piece of it. If we sincerely believe that Jesus is Lord, Lord, if we believe the prophecies of the Old Testament are true, that God sent his son to die on a cross in our place, if we believe that Jesus actually lived a perfect life, and then died a criminal's death, and was in the tomb, and on the third day, if we believe that he rose again, and he showed himself to over 500 people, and then we believe that he ascended into heaven, and that he's seated at the right hand of God, and if we believe that he's going to come again, in all of his glory, with all the angels, the heavenly host, and he's going to judge, and if we believe that on that day, we're going to stand there and be judged by him, if we believe all this, and we believe that, that in order to spare us from that day, his blood was shed, and he experienced the flames of hell. And if we believe that, then it's reasonable, imminently reasonable, to give him our heart, to give him all of who we are, to become that living sacrifice. That's reasonable. It's right, and it's best. The workers of lawlessness were engaged in these great works to bring glory to themselves. Their orthodoxy was to puff themselves up. Their passion was to bring themselves a sense of assurance instead of faith, instead of placing their life, whole life, all of your worries, all of your concerns, all of your relationships, your future, your past, your present, into the hands of God and saying, I trust you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to learn your will and I'm going to do it. I'm going to eradicate the false doctrine and myths in my life and I'm going to learn sound doctrine. I'm going to do the work that you want me to do, not the things that make me look good. And by your grace and mercy and your power, I'm going to test myself regularly so that when I come before you, I won't hear away from me, worker of iniquity. I will hear you say, come, enter my rest, son, daughter. If you didn't, Last week, leave the sermon, evaluating, testing, then you're not hearing what Christ has to say. He's not trying to cause confusion, and he doesn't want you to leave in a chaotic state of horror. He wants you to test yourself. 
objectively, according to his word. He wants you to say to yourself, do I really know God the Father through Christ? Do I really love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? Do I know that he loves me? Do I know that? Don't stop asking until you get a resounding yes. Hmm? Let's pray. Father, you are so good and so gracious that you would give us this teaching before that day. That you would tell us before that day that many will be deceived. That you would warn us so that we won't be one of the many who are deceived. You are so good and you're so gracious that you provide your son as a means, as a way out of this hellish dilemma of sin and death and hell. And not only is he the means, but he's the end. He's the prize. You give him to us so that we might have life both now and forever with him. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would show us the glory of your son. Show us his majesty and show us his honor and show us, Lord, the blood that was shed that might redeem a people like us. Show us. Give us that that real security, that assurance of salvation in Christ and the cross. I pray that you would give it to me. I pray that you would give it to my brothers and sisters and those who are here who are visiting and that you would give it to your real church throughout the world. I pray that we would not be self-deceived. I pray, Lord, that we would go out and seek brothers and sisters in Christ who know you, who will come alongside us and help us see ourselves truly for who we really are in you or maybe not in you at all. We lack wisdom, and so you command us biblically to pray for wisdom, so we ask for it. Make us wise. We lack passion for your son. Give us that passion. We lack sound biblical doctrine, Lord, Give us the desire to seek you out and to know your will and then do it. And by your grace and mercy, cause us to examine ourselves, even this very hour, before we get in that car and drive home, so that we know we know you and we know that you know us. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for neglecting this very basic teaching, for making assumptions that may not be true, Forgive us for that and instead, Lord, show us Christ. Show us him. In his name, amen.